And I'll be reading from Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30. They left that place and passed through the Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered to, over to human hands. He will be killed, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant. We were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about along the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be the first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me, welcomes, uh, does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. I'm happy to be with you all this morning. Welcome to Children's Sunday. Yay! <laughs> um, I know what you might be thinking. The children's minister had Rachel read this passage about Jesus talking about children. Very cliche, not a big surprise, but um, I hope that we can uh, experience it together in a new way this morning. So I wanna talk about one of my favorite topics, and that is healthy human development. Um, I'm no psychologist, but I'd like to create a foundation for talking about our movement through life today by describing a um, psychosocial development theory by Eric Erickson and how it relates to our gospel reading. Um, so, let's walk together through this development theory. Bear with me. Um, Erickson was a Pulitzer Prize winning um, psychologist who lived pretty much the span of the 20th century, um, and his development theory did something a little bit new. Previously, developmental theories were ended at adolescence, um, but Erickson realized that development comes through the whole life. And I think that's really key. We're constantly changing. We're constantly invited to grow closer with God and others um, in development. So, traditionally, the theory goes like this. It starts at the bottom there. Um, and it goes from birth to death in a sequential movement. Hopefully you can read that. Um, so we start at the bottom, and Erickson theorized that in our first year, we are developing a sense of trust versus mistrust. So infants experience their caregivers and parents and are discovering in this stage things like, can I trust that my needs will be met? Are there people in this world that will take care of me? Is the world safe? The next stage is for very young children, developing a sense of autonomy versus shame and doubt. They're beginning to test their independence, explore different activities, and see if they can do things on their own. Next, we have initiative versus guilt, which is preschool, play age, who are learning to make up their own games and play with others. They start to choose their own clothes, 
choose their friends, and without the ability to initiate their own decisions, guilt can occur because of a feeling of being a burden to others. And next we have inferiority, industry versus inferiority, which is for school-aged children who are learning more advanced skills like reading and math, um, they're learning that they might be good at some things, maybe not as good as others. Other people might be good at those things, and that's okay. That's a good thing. And then we have the adult cycles of life, which Erickson says begins with companionship or intimacy versus isolation, and then moves into the stage of generativity versus stagnation. Stagnation happens when you're not comfortable with your life choices and you don't know how to progress. And the word generativity is used in the sense of the next generation where our work is expanded outward from us in a nourishing and productive way. This is where nurturing the next generation is important, no matter whether you have kids of your own or not. Perhaps it is creating a better world for the next generation. Perhaps it is making sure our Earth is taken care of so the next generation can survive. And finally, we have integrity versus despair stage where we reckon with death and our own impact on the world. We ask ourselves if we are satisfied with the lives that we have lived. Now, Erickson presented these stages in a sequence, but I think that the idea of these developmental markers being very structured and um, they have to be completed at a certain age is really way too rigid. Um, for example, companionship is not something you have to find in a certain stage of life. We're constantly being invited into community. Um, but beyond that, I think we all have crises in our lives, to use Erickson's words, crises, um, that bring us into new stages. For example, industry versus inferiority. Has anyone ever had a new job? Imposter syndrome, yes, it's real. Um, but development is not merely a cycle, it's a web. So we're constantly bouncing around, moving through life in a fluid way um, at varying rates. And if we choose it, we are constantly growing. So for example, as mortals, we're always aware of the possibility of death, perhaps some of us more than others, depending on how old we are. A bit of my own story, though. Um, when I was 26, some of you may know I was diagnosed with cancer. Um, I'm now cancer free. But when I first got the news, I had no idea what stage it was. I had no idea what the outcome was going to be. And so I had to reckon with death in a way that I never had before. I had to think about my impact on the earth and if I was okay with the life that I'd lived. This was uh, integrity versus despair, certainly, but it was also trust versus mistrust. Can I trust my body? Can I trust that God will be with me even though my world seems shattered? And it took me a long time to get back to, yes, Jesus loves me. I am weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. I tell you this to describe the way that um, we're cycling through these stages. It's not a strict sequence, but the flow of life comes and goes. We're always developing, and that's a good thing. So. Now, if we look at both sides of this equation, for example, trust versus mistrust, in Ignatian spirituality, we might call these consolations and desolations. Some of you may have heard of the examine. That's one of my favorite spiritual practices. 
Um, it's an ancient Christian practice associated with St. Ignatius. It is contemplative prayer, moving through our memories, usually at the end of the day. This uh, practice involves asking yourself, what am I most grateful for today, and what was challenging? The former consolation, the latter desolation. Um, but this spirituality of the examine reminds us that both consolations and desolations are useful to God and important for growing in our spiritual lives. Um, this description might be helpful. It comes from the Gravity Center for Contemplative Action. A consolation is an experience that causes you to feel fully alive, at peace, joyful, happy, comforted, whole, connected, your best self, and could be understood as an experience in which you feel close to God. A desolation is an experience that causes you to feel drained of energy, frustrated, irritated, angry, sad, alone, isolated, unaccepted, fragmented, less than your best self, and could be understood as, as an experience where you feel far away from God. The tricky thing about desolation is that even though it's uncomfortable and sometimes distressing experience, we may feel that God is far away, but God is still very near. So the gift of praying with the desolation, telling God about your experience, and asking for God's grace in this experience, God shows up in our desolations and consolations. In other words, nothing is wasted. No pain, no loss, nothing is wasted. God won't let us fall through the web of mercy. And if you wanna learn more about the examine, uh, here's a website, super, super awesome practice, so it's worth checking out. Um, but hear this good news, no matter how your life has gone, no matter what trauma you've experienced, even in your childhood, you can experience positive development, even in stages that seem past. I need you to believe that with me, and we'll get back to that in a few minutes. But you might be wondering how this relates to Jesus. Let us now return to our gospel reading, and I think we can see some very interesting development that Jesus has done here. The reason I chose this text is because the richness of Jesus' development that we see. Um, but fun fact, um, we've been working through, over the summer, our series called God's Transforming Justice, where we follow the lectionary. Um, we're transitioning to a new series next week, but um, actually next week's lectionary reading was this passage, so getting a little jump. But I didn't choose that, so that's very fun. I didn't know that when I chose the passage. Um, so let's orient ourselves a bit. Mark is thought to be the first gospel written and could be the source material for Matthew and Luke. Um, our reading today occurs in Matthew and Luke as well and in the same order, first starting with Jesus predicting his own death and then the disciples arguing over who's the greatest and then Jesus blesses the children. That means that all three gospel writers thought it was important. And Mark is a performative text. Its rhetorical cues suggest that it was meant to be told as an oral epic or a drama where the crucifixion is the climax of the story. It was meant to be heard. It was meant to be orally told and heard and to move the hearts of the audience. And Mark is structured in a movement of increasingly intensity of plot. Here are the main sections. And our scripture reading from today comes from that middle one where Jesus is revealing his identity. He is the son of man. And so also in this section, he's constantly performing miracles that prove who he is, making it known who he is, the Messiah, the one that will die at the hands of the rulers. 
This section is all about Jesus revealing who he is. Biblical scholars tell us that much of the Bible is trauma literature, or works written to a traumatized audience trying to make sense of what has happened to them and to learn something about the trauma they've experienced. Like the Torah, the five books of Moses, they were t that was to a people recovering from slavery. The prophets, they're written to a people in exile. And Mark is similar. The early church was being persecuted and perhaps still processing the loss of Jesus. Here's a quote from one of my favorite seminary professors, Judy Fentress Williams. She says, Mark takes the traumatized audience back to the crucifixion, the foundational trauma of the faith, and invites them to see it as a moment Christ's identity and purpose is revealed. I think there's a real sense of identity development here. Verse 31, he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered to the hands of men. They will kill him. After three days, he will rise. Jesus knows who he is. One commentary said that um, the term son of man is Jesus' favorite uh, phrase to refer to himself. It's used 81 times in the Gospels. Jesus knows who he is. It's an Old Testament phrase used to re uh, refer to the Messiah. And if we look at the generativity piece, uh, this was also a moment where Christ expressed his vocation. His job, his role was to be the Messiah, the son of man. He's in the saving business. And I think we also see here that Jesus knows his impact. He's reckoned with his death and with his legacy, and he knows what it will mean. So why bring up the development of Jesus? Jesus was fully God and fully human. Uh, I love Hebrews 2, which says that um, Jesus was made like us, fully human in every way. That phrase, fully human, I think that's so cool. How do we be fully human too? Fully shared our human experience. There's nothing in our lives that Jesus doesn't understand. He expresses the fullness of empathy, complete compassion. He got tired and he slept in the boat before calming the storm. He was thirsty, he grieved, he needed alone time to pray, and in Gethsemane, he confronted his own death. And we also see that in this passage. Jesus knew existential dread. Very thankful for that. Hebrews 4 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And because Jesus was fully human, there's no aspect of our nature that Jesus cannot and did not already redeem. Jesus was fully human, and as he was the ultimate example of what humanity can look like and was made to look like. We are invited to follow Jesus in every way. Ephesians 5 says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love. Jesus travels before us and invites us on the journey. And Ephesians 4 puts it this way, Christ gave us all the resources we need to, in the prophets and the teachers to become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What a beautiful way to describe healthy human development, attained the whole measure of the fullness of God, Christ. Christ is the ultimate example of what we are to be more and more in this life and in fullness in the next. And because of this, we can learn from his development. In fact, if we look back, we can see lots of areas where Jesus experiences development. 
He displays a real sense of intimacy and companionship with the disciples. My favorite, John chapters 13 through 17, that Last Supper sermon, Jesus says, Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. What a sense of intimacy, of true community. And I think of trust versus mistrust when Jesus was tempted. Jesus knew who to trust and where to put it. He trusted God, not the words of Satan. Even in the face of angry, uh, hungry temptation, he trusted God's words even in that difficult moment. And another interesting example is this crisis of autonomy and uh, resolution of industry when Jesus turns the water into wine. Mary's mother, uh, Mary, Jesus' mother, is like, come on, please turn the water into wine. And Jesus says, my hour hasn't come yet. And she said, do whatever he tells you to the servants. And so he asked the servants to bring out the stone jars, and he says, fill them with water. And the master of the banquet tasted the water, and it had been turned into wine. That's some industry right there. The gospel show us that Jesus is our ideal for human development. And I think it's fair to look at that through um, Erickson's uh, lens. Where else do we see the development of Jesus? In Luke uh, 2, 40 and 51, Jesus increased in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God. He was, of course, born and nurtured by his mother and father. He developed as we development, as we develop, both in brain development, physical development, spiritual development. When we over-attribute adultness to the child that Jesus was, are we devaluing the faith of children? Are we believing that children cannot have a genuine faith? On that note, let's move to the second part of our gospel reading. The disciples are arguing about who's greatest, and Jesus completely flips that. He says, it's like he was saying, don't you know that you have something to learn from children? In Jesus' time, a child was the lowest status in the household. Jesus says those of the lowest status will be elevated. They are so important to the kingdom of God. And in Luke, the same story is sandwiched between the parable of um, Pharisees' oppression and then the story of the rich young ruler. It's definitely about humility in the kingdom, but I think there's something else going on here too. Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. If we want to be a people who welcome God, we must be a people who welcome children. Welcoming a child is generosity without the expectation of gain. This is just a few verses later. This is Mark 10. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will not enter it. So he took the child in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. The kingdom of God belongs to these. The faith of children is a real faith. It's experiential, intuitive, trusting, not merely intellectual. The elevation of only intellectualized faith is a Western idol. 
In fact, much of this section of Mark is about how none of the adult disciples understood what Jesus was saying. Yet Jesus says, to enter the kingdom, you must be like a child. Cognitive ability does not equal faith. God's spirit is always inviting all of us, no matter our age or cognitive ability, to commune with God. I invite you to catch yourself if you find yourself in despair about the younger generations. They may have different values, but they have real faith and their values matter. So let's bring this home to our hearts. Are there areas in this web of development that you feel you may have maldeveloped? Trauma interrupts this development. We all have trauma in our lives and they can affect how we see God and how we see others. If any of these stages cause a reaction in you, I invite you to pay extra special attention and to think about why this might be cause for attention. Exploring our developmental hurts is spiritual formation. The mistrust and despair that I experienced with my cancer diagnosis led me to fear God. I needed to engage those feelings if I was to grow spiritually. How to explore these hurts and heal? First of all, I encourage you all to go to therapy. I'm a big fan of therapy for absolutely everyone. We all have trauma. We can all benefit from talking to someone with some intentionality. And if you're waiting for a sign, this is the sign. Go to therapy. <laughs> but also go to God. Bring these things in prayer. If you're having trouble with that, I invite you to choose a psalm that might help. The Psalms, after all, are the prayers of God's people that teach us that nothing, no human emotion is out of reach for God. So go to God in prayer. And the next way to engage our developmental hurts is to share God's love. I sincerely believe that the best way to experience God's love is to share it. Nurturing others helps us realize the nurture that God longs to extend to us. Sometimes I have trouble believing that God loves me, but I don't have trouble believing that God loves other people because I see how wonderful they are. How many of us are as mean to ourselves as we are to our friends? The other way around. How many of us are as mean to our friends as we are to ourselves? <laughs> Being kind to others allows us to be kind to ourselves. And I also believe that sharing God's love with a specific developmental stage can be particularly helpful. Experiencing a child at this age might reveal to us our hurts, places God wants to work with us. Ask anyone who's parented, working with children exposes our inner child and all their issues. It is for this reason that being in community is spiritual practice. Being in community with children is a spiritual practice. When our desolations are exposed, we can engage them. Without awareness of our desolations, we cannot learn from them. My uh, professor and mentor, Dr. Gerald Wright, said that he was always most healthy, mentally, spiritually, all of it, when he was mentoring someone. I think there's a lot of wisdom there. And beyond that, nurturing children is not just the act of giving. There's much to receive from them. We can absolutely learn from the faith of children. It's not undeveloped. Children of any age can have a real faith. I learn from that faith all the time when I work with kids. It's such a gift. They have questions I've never, never thought of. They have sincerity that I sometimes try to mask, and I just appreciate that so much. When we see the absolutely genuine way that children 
see the world and see God, it helps us regain some of that genuine posture, that childlike faith that Jesus says will receive the kingdom of God. Let us enter in. Amen.